31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The word of the Lord. I was really looking forward to hearing Helen say sumptuously. It did not disappoint. Um, If you've been with us, you know we've been looking at these parables of Jesus, especially in Luke's um, gospel. Luke has this long travel narrative of Jesus, that Jesus turns his face towards Jerusalem and begins to move towards Jerusalem. Of course, we know um, because we've, we've heard or we've read the rest of the book that we know Jesus is marching towards his own death. It's the climax of his life that he comes to give his life for us. And along the way, there's all these these people who are asking him questions. And Jesus often is responding to them with stories, with these parables. And for some, they bring clarity. And for others, they bring more confusion. In this particular parable, um, we didn't read this part, but just a few verses earlier, we're told by Luke that Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. And he adds a little clause about who the Pharisees are. He said, the Pharisees who are lovers of money. And so these are people who, in every way, on the outside, their lives are ordered by God and directed by God. They're serious about the word of God. But the insight that Luke gives us and the reason that Jesus tells this parable to them specifically is because Jesus knows what's going on behind that facade of all their religiosity is what they actually trusted in was their own ability to produce and make money. And so he tells them this story. And before we think about it, let me pray. Father, give us um, grace this morning. Give us wisdom. Give us eyes that are able to actually see and ears that, are, that you dig out for us so that we can hear. 
Father, give us hearts um, full of belief in you, that belief even in our faith is a gift of your spirit. And so, Father, grant that to us this morning. Give us the ability to think about our own lives honestly, to do the hard work of looking at ourselves, to know that because you are who you said you are, we have the freedom to do that because what you want for us is to be conformed more and more to the image of your son, Jesus. Father, there is freedom, and there is life, and there is peace and joy and rest. But, Father, often it's hidden from our eyes, so allow us to see it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, any of you who've, um, who own a car currently or um, have ever owned a car, one day, if you do own a car, you'll have inevitably this experience where you're driving down the road one day and you begin to hear something that's coming up there in the front of the car where like that engine thing is that makes your car move, right? And you hear this noise and it's um, a little bit disconcerting. And, um, you know, growing up, I loved the show uh, Car Talk on NPR. Anybody else? Click and Clack, the Tappet Brothers. Anybody else listen to Car Talk? Yes, thank you. Um, and they would always, when people called in to ask them questions about their car, they would always try to get uh, the people to describe the sound that their car was making. And they just, you know, it was like, knock, 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 knock. You're know, like, whir, whir. And they loved it. They loved because it made the people sound crazy. And they would just laugh and laugh and laugh. Well, you've been in that moment before where you hear this noise and you're like, um, I don't know what cars really do. I just know that I get in it and it starts and it takes me from point A to B. I'm not sure exactly how that happens. And so when you hear that noise, um, you kind of ignore it and you think maybe it'll go away. And then the next day it gets louder. And maybe it's when you press the gas or when you turn the wheel, it intensifies. And so you do what any normal person who doesn't know that much about cars would do is you turn up the radio. You get it loud enough to where it's a song preferably that you can sing to, so you're amplifying the noise within the vehicle so you don't hear the noise that's happening in front of you until maybe, this might go on for quite a while. This might go on until maybe you kind of even don't hear it anymore. And then one day you take your friend somewhere in your car and they get in and they're like, what? in the world is that noise? Do you not hear that noise? I mean, you can barely have a conversation because the noise is so loud. And so finally you throw up your hands and you go to a mechanic. And upon arriving at the the mechanic's garage, you look at this guy and you may think in your mind and in your prideful heart, what, what could this guy possibly know? He doesn't look maybe like much. I probably know more than he does But within a matter of moments, he pops your hood, he looks at your engine, and he tells you something in maybe just a few minutes that you never could have figured out on your own. And he looks at you and he says, you know, it's good you came in. If you had waited a few more days, you would have fried your engine. Some of us have maybe had an experience similar to that before, and I think that what we keep seeing with Jesus as he tells these stories and he tells these parables over and over again, what he's showing us is that we are able to live with a whole lot of self-deception. That we're able to sort of turn up the radio and drown out the rattle 
and continue going because we're sort of like, you know, the engine's still running. I must be okay. If I just go long enough, it'll probably go away. And before we know it, we don't even hear the rattle anymore. And Jesus is saying, he's showing us in these parables in a way that only these parables can do. He's showing us our hearts. And he's showing us that what sin does, and we saw this last week when we talked about greed, is that what sin does is it, it deceives us. It starts to make us think, well, if I just wait a little longer, if I do a few more good things, if I get my life a little bit more in order or in line, then this other thing, this noise that's in the background that's starting to dissipate because I'm just so used to it that finally it'll just go away. And Jesus is saying to us, it won't just go away. You need someone to fix it. But for you to be able to be fixed means you have to acknowledge you got to take it into the mechanic, right? And Jesus, if I can put this this way, is like the great mechanic in the sky, right? Jesus is not much to look at. He's a, he's a carpenter from, from Nazareth. What, what good can come out of Nazareth? Jesus is one from whom men hid their faces, Isaiah tells us. People literally did not want to look at him. And yet Jesus can open you up and look inside and show you yourself in a way that you would never have been able to see before. And then, wonder of wonders, he can fix it. He can fix it. At the heart of what I think this passage, this parable is getting at is Jesus is asking this question. And I said this last week that underneath kind of all of these parables is really this ringing question. What do you trust in? What do you lean upon in life? Where, where, where does your faith actually rest? And Jesus is really getting at it this way in this parable is asking us, where do we place our identity? Where do we place our trust? What defines who we actually are? And ultimately we see that if we define ourselves by anything other than who he says we are, then we become really deceived. And we may not know it, right? If you're deceived, how do you know that you're deceived? Well, Jesus tells this story so that we'll know. And so I want to look at three things this morning because I'm a pastor and that's what pastors do. I want to look at the importance of your identity. I want to look at the result of your identity. And then I want to look at the decision of your identity. The importance of your identity. You know, these first few verses of this parable, Jesus tells us a lot about these two men in a really short amount of time. He tells us about this rich man, and he tells us about this other man. And one of the, other thi- one of the really interesting and unique things about this parable that you actually don't see in any of the other parables of Jesus is that this other man actually has a proper name. And it's weird, but if you look at the other parables... They, nobody else, they may be referred to as a tax collector or a sinner or, or a, a, as we'll see um, soon, a younger brother, an older brother, or a father. But this one man has a name. And when that happens in Scripture, you pay attention because Jesus doesn't just like kind of willy-nilly say, well, let's give this guy a name and we never give anybody else a name. But this guy's name is Lazarus. And... We've heard of Lazarus before, and so we shouldn't confuse. This is a story that Jesus is telling. He also has a friend named Lazarus who's the brother of Mary and Martha of Bethany who Jesus raises from the dead. And maybe this is why Jesus chose this name, but I think that the reason that he actually chooses to name this man 
this is because names in this culture were really important in telling you something about the person. And, I mean, we saw an exception to this maybe this morning in our baptism, but oftentimes we might choose the name of our child um, just based on how it sounds with our last name, which is a real challenge with Dodge. It's like, what are we going to name this kid, right? Um, but in the Bible, I mean, if you've read it at all, you know that names were really important, and often people, their names would change based on something that happened to them. They were converted, you know, Saul to Paul. Um, and it told you something, not necessarily even about what um, maybe their parents wanted them to be. It told, them something, uh, told you something about who they currently are. And so it's interesting in this parable, the, the name of this poor man, the name of Lazarus, it, it actually means God alone is my help. In God do I trust. Something along those lines. And the reason that that's really significant is because through this naming, we're being told something about each man's identity. Lazarus' very name means somebody who depends on God. And so the people who were listening to this parable, the Pharisees, would have understood that. It may be lost on us. This is why I'm telling us. uh, That they knew, okay, this man has a name, and his name is a pretty important name. It tells us something about who he is. And you see that in the description of him. This man is, he's poor, he's most likely disabled, he's covered in sores, and he is begging. And often people like this would have, and we were told he's laid at the gate. Somebody would come maybe every morning and pick this man up and take him to the gate of somebody who was wealthy and lay him down there. And day after day, Lazarus would just kind of wait to see if somebody who had more than he did would actually help him out. But the rich man, he doesn't have a proper name. His name is just, he's just identified as the rich man. Why? Because that is his entire identity. That is who he is. That is what defines him. That is what he trusts in him. We remember last week when um, Jesus is warning the crowd, when this man says, divide my inheritance um, between me and my brother. And Jesus says, be on guard. Your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Well, here in this parable, here's a man whose life consists, or so he thought, in the abundance of his possessions. It's where he put his hope. It's where he put his trust. It was his identity. In contrast to Lazarus, he didn't need anybody's help. He didn't need his neighbor's help. He didn't need God's help. He was doing just fine. His needs were met by his wealth. He lived in luxury every day. He wore the finest clothes. He ate the finest foods. And all the while, he had no need to pay attention to this man, Lazarus, who was at his gate because that man had nothing to offer him. And so maybe it's even, you know, the dogs of this rich man who go out to the gate every day and and just sort of adding insult to injury, his dogs come out, instead of helping him, they, they lick his wounds. And so then there's a twist in this parable, as often there is with Jesus's, and this one is pretty stark, and it comes pretty early in the parable, that the twist is this, is both men, I guess, kind of simultaneously die. And the rich man lands in Hades, and Lazarus is carried by angels into heaven and is placed at Abraham's right side. And we're not told like anything else about 
these two men and why they end up in the respective places that they do. All we're told is that one man is self-sufficient and apparently very selfish, and the other man is desperate and who is needy, and his name signifies that his help is found only in God. In other words, it, it was where they found their identity in this life that dictated where they went on the day they died. It seems that's what Jesus is saying. And why is this so significant? Is Jesus saying this? All rich people go to Hades, and all poor people are carried by angels and placed on Abraham's right side. That's not how his parables work. That's not what he's teaching us. What he's teaching us instead is that it was the difference in the rich man's lifestyle that was indicative of where his faith rested. And to use this man as an illustration was very stark, and it was something that everyone could understand. And he was actually talking to Pharisees who we were just told were lovers of money. And so Jesus says, let me tell you this parable. I think you might be able to relate to it. Where you put your hope and your trust in this life matters. And he built his life around this platform of wealth. And if you took away his wealth, he was nothing. It was his identity. And so here's the question. And it leads us to this uncomfortable question because Jesus wants us to ask uncomfortable questions. This is the reason he tells these parables is because it pops the hood kind of on our hearts so that we might ask these questions and see what's going on inside. Is there a rattle that I'm ignoring? And the question is this, how do we know where our identity actually rests? How do we know where our faith actually rests? How do we know what defines my existence and what I actually hope in. That's a biggie question, right? That's a question that we could take a bunch of different angles to, and we could ask a lot of diagnostic questions about our own lives to get at the answer to that question, and we should ask a lot of diagnostic questions about that, really on a daily basis, where does my faith rest, and what do I trust in, where do I find my identity? But I think the question that's most clear in this passage is, a, is an interesting one. And the question is this. Who is invisible to you? I mean, that's what's happening in this passage, the, the, that there's a man in this rich man's life who is there day after day, is always at his gate, who is needy and is poor and is begging, and he's invisible to this other man. You see, it's, it's obvious the rich man, he didn't notice this man at his gate because he was completely absorbed with maintaining his identity. And his identity didn't have room for opening up his hand and opening up his life to this other man. In fact, that would hurt him because it would take away the very thing in which he trusted in. And so the question is, who's invisible to you? Who is it in your life that you don't see and that you don't notice when your status is wrapped up in something other than God? There's always going to be people who are invisible to you. They are unimportant people, but more than that, they're people who actually get in the way of the thing that you worship. They get in the way in the thing that you trust in. And so um, Jesus meddling, as Jesus does, is asking this question, and, and this question pops into our head as we read this passage, hopefully. Who is invisible to you? Is it the same as in this passage? Is it, uh, is it people who 
have less than you do. People who are poor. People who maybe beg. People who you look at and you're like, yeah, I mean, I can sum you up pretty quickly. You've wrecked your own life with your addiction. And for me to spend time with you is going to alter my life. And so you're kind of getting what you deserve. Is, are the people that are invisible to us maybe the people that we just encounter behind the register? The people who live maybe down the street? Are they the people, as, as we've heard in the news ad nauseum in the last couple of weeks, are they the people who have left their homes and grabbed their three-month-old and five-year-old and began to walk over a thousand miles trying to look for a better place to live? And maybe the thing that pops into some of our minds is, don't come in here and wreck my life. Is it possible that we ask, we, we, people are invisible to us, that we don't see in them that they're made in the image of God because our identity rests in our wealth or in our education or in our current status or in our nationality or in our comfort or in our security or in something other than Jesus? Is it possible that that's the case? I think Jesus is saying, yes, that's possible it's the case. And to stop and recognize somebody who is previously invisible to you and to give you give them your resources would slow you down. It might mess up the very thing you trust in. Are the invisible people maybe in your life non-Christians? Are they people who you would rather not have to associate with because you believe something differently than they believe and really what you're discovering is that your identity is not built upon the forgiveness and the grace of Jesus. It's built upon the morality of a religious institution which you think separates you from people who don't believe what you believe. It's a hard question. I could go on and on and on, but it's a really important question to ask where does my faith rest? Where does my identity rest? One way to get there one of many ways is to ask who's invisible to you. And so what is the result of that? I mean, when, what you define your life by is important not only because of where it leads, but because of how you live right now, right? And so what is the result of your identity? So for Lazarus, his identity was built upon God being his help. And the result, what was the result of that? Well, if your identity is built on God being your help, then your identity is unchanged based upon your circumstance. Did it mean that Lazarus had an easy and a nice life? No, it sounds quite miserable. It's a life that I don't want. But who Lazarus was remained unchanged despite the fact that he was a beggar who had to be laid outside of somebody else's gate every day because he was defined by the riches of heaven. So it doesn't matter if you are rich in this life or poor in this life or attractive in this life or unattractive in this life or successful or educated or uneducated. It doesn't change the basis of who you are. It is the most liberating aspect of what it means to be in Christ or one of the most liberating, not the most that because what Jesus says about you and that he alone is your help means that I don't have to spend my life defining who I am based upon what other people think of me. I don't have to do that. 
It doesn't matter if they think I'm successful, if they think I'm good-looking, if they think I'm too fat, if they think I'm too thin, if they think I've... Whatever. What I'm defined by, my identity, is that Jesus has found me and brought me into his house and washed me with his blood and forgiven me, and I'm not defined by my circumstances. How do we know? How do we know if our identity is in Jesus then? Maybe ask these uncomfortable questions like this. Can I bear the thought of my dreams being shattered in this life? Can I bear the thought of certain things being taken away from me in this life? Can I bear the, can I live with the thought that my life might not turn out the way that I dreamed it would and it might actually be more uncomfortable and more painful and more tragic in ways that I never would have wished for? And if we can answer those questions by saying, yes, I can bear that thought, what it means is that there is an identity, that there is a trust, that there is something that is much deeper than those things that our heart actually is secured to and is resting in. There's no other way that you can answer those questions in the affirmative unless you have found something that is better than worldly circumstances that meet your expectations. There's no other way to do that. It sounds crazy. But for, for Lazarus, I mean, what, what Peter tells us is that a thousand years to God are like a day which puts our lives into perspective. And we think, well, the things that we'll encounter in this life, if I could simply get them structured enough to where they meet my expectations, then I'll have a good life. And, and, G, and God is saying to us, you know, your life is like that. Even your pain and your suffering is going to go by like that. And you are with me for eternity. That is the reality, even though your neighbor might think it's nuts. It's true, and this is what Jesus is telling us. And what is about the result of the rich man's identity? Well, when we define our lives by anything other than Jesus, then we exhaust our lives trying to defend that definition. Because we're the ones who created the definition of who we are, so we must be the ones who defend the definition of who we are. If it's wealth, like in this passage, we've got to protect our wealth. We've got to protect the thing that brings us security. And so Jesus is always leaning into this because it's so tempting for us. And if we're paranoid about our wealth being taken away, then we live our lives consumed with how we might secure it. And if markets crash or if governments try to take too much of our money and we only give things away when there is either a social benefit to it or there's a tax break. And what we find is that the rich man is reluctant to let go of his power even in Hades. I mean, listen to him. It's still the thing that defines him, even though he actually has no power at all. And how do you see that? He's still bossing Lazarus around. Hey, Abraham, send that boy Lazarus down here to wet my tongue. Do you hear the, the condescension and the pride and the arrogance that is still in this man? In fact, it's intensified and it's come out and you see it glaring in all of its hideousness. He's still bossing people around and hell, this man is left to his own self-deceit and pride and there's not an escape from it. The rich man still doesn't think he's wrong. He just wants someone to maybe lessen his pain a little bit. 
he's still not repenting. And so that leaves us with this last point. Then what is the decision of our identity? If, if our identity is important because of those results in this life and the next, then every day we have a decision that we say, like, what, do I, what am I going to trust in today? Now, you may have gone, well, I gave my life to Jesus when I was seven years old, and I walked the aisle, and I did this. Amen, hallelujah, glad you did that. What do you trust in today? What do you trust? What are you going to trust in tomorrow? What are you going to trust in when you lose your job? What do you trust in when everyone looks at you and thinks that you're messing up your life, but what you really know you're doing is you're following Jesus? What are you going to trust in when your best friend betrays you? Or your spouse dies. What are you trusting in today is the question that Jesus is asking because these Pharisees looked really holy and really spiritual, but he saw their hearts because he is the one who can see that. And he says, I'm not what you trust in at all. You think you're fooling everyone, but you're not fooling me, and you're really not even fooling yourself. And so we need to be brought to Jesus and let him show where we're broken and where we're deceived. And it's interesting how this parable ends. We're sort of left wondering about these five brothers of this rich man, and will they repent? And we see, will they see their misplaced identity? The rich, the rich man wants Abraham to send Lazarus now. Come down, wet my tongue. Wait a second. No, go to my five brothers and warn them. So they don't end up in this place. Surely if somebody comes back from the dead that they will repent. And Abraham says back to him, if they don't listen to the Bible, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, then they're not going to believe and repent even if somebody is raised from the dead. And this is a whopper of a statement because Jesus is pointing his finger and he's saying, you are so self-deceived that in not too long I am going to rise from the dead and you still will not believe in me. And how about us? It's okay for this parable to make you uncomfortable. It should. It's why Jesus told it. Because Jesus isn't afraid to unsettle us because he loves us. And Jesus loves us so much that he wants us to hear. There is this rattle under the hood It is the thing that you really do love. It is the thing that you really do trust in. It is the thing that's causing the anger in your life. It is the thing that is causing you to be isolated from other people. It's basically the fact that you really don't trust me. You trust in something else. Maybe it's been there for years and we're just accustomed to it and we don't hear it anymore. And so Jesus is breaking through the hard stubborn self-deception of our hearts so that we might see that we're just like Lazarus, right? I mean, he shows us in the parable of the Good Samaritan that basically you're like a man who's left on the side of the road. And, and in this parable, what he really wants us to see that is that even if you're the rich man, you're really still like Lazarus. That you really, everything you have has been given to you. You are dependent upon me for everything. And you may be laying there day in and day out. But here I am one who has come out. I own the storehouses of the riches of the universe. And I hear your cry. And I've come out to you. And I've fed you. And I've bound your wounds. And I brought you back into my house so that you could dine with me for all of eternity. The very last book in the Bible is this revelation from John. And there's some letters, and I'll end with this, there's some letters 
that are written to these churches at the very beginning of Revelation that John is able to hear, and he records them for us. And one of those letters is to this church, and it's called um, Laodicea, and it's really eerie in how it parallels what Jesus is getting at in this parable. He says this, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. That is an invitation to us all. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the words of our Savior Jesus, words that are not always easy for us to hear, words that are uncomfortable. We thank you that you actually reprove and discipline those who you love. And Father, if we feel that maybe in our lives this morning, um, I pray that what we would feel is the, the gracious, gentle, yet firm hand of Jesus pulling back the veil on our hearts so that we might see where we don't trust, where we might see where we're being, maybe feeling like we're robbed of life um, because we're not getting what we want when in fact we're, we have a misplaced trust and a misplaced identity. Father, help us to see that. Thank you for being gracious enough to condescend to us, to show us who we are so that we might find hope in Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.